morning. Do you want to be known? I know that we want to know things. We want to know things on our own terms, know things out of our own freedom, but that's not what I asked. Do you want to be known? Is that different? Well, we talk a lot, I think, about all the sorts of things that we're going to try to know and we're going to try to secure our freedom because we're going to use our knowledge on our own terms. We're going to learn it when we want. We're going to do what we want when we want. Right? That's the American dream. That's what we want to do. If you think, I mean, we can go through politics. Republicans are concerned about freedom. Democrats are concerned about freedom. Libertarians are concerned about freedom, all in their different ways, but they're concerned about freedom, right? You can go to the business world. Corporations just want the freedom to use the knowledge they have in any way they want. And consumers also want to do the same thing, to use the knowledge that they have because the consumer is king and they want to be able to buy what they want. Everything seems to be catered to this assumption that we know ourselves. Do you think you know yourself? I think a lot of people, especially the college students that I work with, they are so self-aware, almost to a scary extent. I don't know if they've just drunk the the therapeutic Kool-Aid of their culture, but way more self-aware than I ever was. Maybe maybe that's on me and not, not the culture. It seems like they are so self-aware. And maybe you strive to become more and more self-aware. But I wonder if we need to prioritize not just growing in self-awareness, but God-awareness. Not just to, to know more things, because we have Google in our pocket and we can know literally any information we want in less than one second. But to be known. What is it like to be known? To know that we are known. Passive tense. That's what I want us to consider and think about. And if we really do want to be known, we are going to have to stop hiding. We're going to have to stop hiding. That's what this psalmist shows us in some amazing ways, this beautiful psalm. It seems like he's in distress facing some sort of enemy. We don't know exactly the context. But he takes time to meditate on the fact that he is known, that God knows him, and that is far, far more important than anything we may know, the fact that God knows us. So let's pray and jump into Psalm 139. Father, what a wonderful thing we've been able to uh, celebrate and remember that you have joined uh, You have joined yourself to us through the church, that you have brought new members into this local body as this expression of your kingdom and and your embassy here on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us by your word, that your Holy Spirit would, would join us to your kingdom in heaven, to your kingdom all over the earth, that you would speak now these amazing truths, this this famous psalm, this well known psalm to many of us. We pray that you would make it new. Show us what it would mean to truly believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. 
Well, I want to look at two reasons of uh, two ways in which we need to stop hiding, and then what we're going to do with that as as the third point uh, to actually consider the fact that we are known. And the first one simply being that God knows you better than you know yourself, and that should be an encouragement for us to stop hiding. And I can tell you with with honesty uh, that. This was not arranged that I would be preaching Psalm 139 on the day of baptisms. Um, if you know, I, I haven't even preached in the service since like June, because uh, normally I'm in the afternoon service at Goatville. I've been in a series of the Psalms for about two years, not preaching every one, but it's just sort of one-off, the key ones. It happens that Psalm 139 comes on this off Sunday where I get to preach here with you, and there's a baptism. And for every kid of mine, we have three little kids, who we, and they were all born here in New Haven, and when the pastor visited us in the hospital, he would read Psalm 139. And I know he's done that to many of you, if you don't remember it, he did, kids in this room. He's done that to your children. To read this with a newborn baby on your lap, to read this with a newly baptized child, and to say, God knows you. Knows you even before you were born. Even in your mother's womb, He was crafting you. Knitting you. I mean, this psalm is so tender. I could never do it justice. It's, we are told that we are wonderfully made. That we are, are made in a way that should, the fearful there is not scary, it's fearful like we should be in awe. We should be in awe of humanity made in the image of God. Not in awe that we're all individually unique, that's not the point. The point is the one who made us, knows us so intimately. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you realize it or not, that is the reality. There's a lot of givenness to who you are that we don't like to face up to. We like to think that we can choose everything and create our own identity and make who we are. There's a lot of things that you didn't choose. And in this case, this is a really good truth about yourself that you didn't choose. That God knows you. That He knows as we read, he knows what is on your tongue before you speak it. He searches out your path in lying down and in rising. He knows your thoughts from afar. There's this, uh, there's this group of mundane activities where he knows you. Your thoughts. He knows when you go to bed. He knows when you sit and when you speak. Maybe that's one thing we need to consider, maybe that's hard to realize, when you're, you're changing a diaper, he knows you. When you are frantically driving kids around to soccer practice or rushing to class, he knows you. The mundane things, maybe we get a little too big for our britches, too sophisticated, and we forget he does know you in those moments too. He's even leading you, we see. Later on, it says that he leads us, carries us 
by the hand. It's really quite amazing. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me, a sort of protection, a sort of providential, you are, you are near, and I am working for your good. Now, we should be honest, though. Maybe this isn't seeming like it's very good news. Do we want a God like this? You know, you may think, a lot of times, big brother in the form of, of government is, is our greatest fear. We want government to get out of the way. Does this seem like like big brother on steroids? Does this seem like the meta big brother that you don't want around? Well, the psalmist clearly is meditating on all, all these truths as a source of comfort, as a source of goodness that he needs to be reminded. So we need to ask ourselves, what are those times that we so often forget? When do we need to be reminded of those facts? Maybe it is in those mundane times. Maybe it is in those seemingly boring times. And I would encourage you to meditate on the first six verses if that's true. He picks up a similar thing and theme in 13 through 17 as well where he gets to creation and the fact that he knew your frame in your mother's womb. He knows you more intimately than we know ourselves. Some, some of you may think, yeah, there are people who know me better than I know myself. My wife or my husband may know me better. My, my father or mother may know me better. This is a, a, a better type of knowledge. So consider that and what that would make you do. Are you humble enough to receive this fact that you are known? That even if you don't know God right now, that you are known. Because this should be a shot to our pride, a shot to our desire to live independently, to live on our own terms. That we are known. And it's not a fact that you can escape. It's not a reality that you can change. If we try to change it, we are banging our head against the wall. So I would encourage you to stop hiding because God knows you. But then there's another aspect of this psalm. In 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12, all of this is so poetic. This maybe is the most poetic section. I'll just read it again to remind you. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave or in death, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So we read that he is near us in the mundane times. He's also near us in the darkest times. Maybe that's the part that you need to meditate on and consider the darkest part of your life. And if you think that that's impossible, you think that that can't be, I would remind you of Jesus on the cross. If this section of the psalm seems to make no sense, then Jesus on the cross will never make sense. Because that was the darkest day. That really was darkness. We're told it literally became dark in the middle of the day. 
to symbolize the darkness. Do you know God in your darkest moments? In maybe your most sinful moments? It's not clear here if he's referring to something he's responsible for, but the the premise would still be true. Do you know God? God knows you not just because he remembers what you did, but that he was there in the midst of your sin. Again, that's kind of scary too, but remember, he was there and he still didn't leave. He still didn't abandon you. He's also there when you are suffering, when you're not responsible. You're undergoing, you're a victim. And he's there. It is as if his presence turns the darkness into light. And so it looks like uh, from this psalm, that fleeing God is really ridiculous. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. We all do it. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where they try to put on little fig leaves to, to hide their nakedness. We are always trying to hide. We are always trying to run from God. We are always trying to flee. It, it, it may seem weird when you read it and you put it out there explicitly, but that is always what we're doing when we refuse to come to him, when we refuse to be honest about our sin to him or to Christian brother or sister that we should be held accountable by. We are running from God. And to put it out there explicitly shows us that is nonsensical. That is absolutely stupid, really. When you look at it face-to-face as a fact of truth, you literally will not be able to accomplish what you're trying to do. I was reminded of uh, playing hide-and-seek, and if you've ever played hide-and-seek with kids who aren't quite developmentally ready to play hide-and-seek, it's really, really fun, because the kid, if I'm supposed to be the person counting and they're supposed to go hide, the kid who's not developmentally ready will stand there and go like this and say, can you find me? Can you see me? They don't go hide behind a tree. They don't go hide. I think that's sort of like what we do. We act as if God can't see us if we close our eyes to it. I mean, we're so, like, notice what that means Developmentally, I guess, it's like they, they can't conceive of the fact that someone sees them if they can't see. So that's how we often act, right? We're so unself-aware that God actually knows us, that we are known whether we know God or not. Wow. That's what we're doing when we try to hide our shame? That's what we're doing when we try to hide our guilt and not admit that God is near? Try not to act like the three-year-old in our relationship with God. For adults, it's a little bit harder, not just to play hide-and-seek, but it, it, it's also harder to, harder to uh, dig down oftentimes. We have a lot more crust to dig through. We have a lot more hardened hearts. But I was also reminded that we let doctors probe Wherever they say they need to probe. Hey, you're the doctor. You're the expert. You do what you got to do. It's going to hurt. You got a three-inch needle. You're going to probe. You're the expert. 
right? The doc- doctors are the new priests in our culture, it's said. You got to do what you got to do. Probe, probe away. But to God? Do we say that? Do God? To God, do we say that? Well, is there any other exam that we can do that's not pr- such probing? It's not so painful. It's not going to face the reality in such a stark way. Why is it that we hide? Ask yourself. Maybe it's a, a sin you don't want to let out. Maybe it's an embarrassment, something in your family, something that only a few people know. It seems like at the heart of this is that we're not quite sure it's going to be good news that God knows. We're not going to we're not convinced that this is actually good news that someone can know us better than we know ourselves. We're still a little afraid. We're afraid maybe God has a, uh, an evil tyrant side to him that we're not quite aware of, so we're not going to open up and say, search me and know me. And so it was, it was for that reason that I put in Hebrews 4 as the New Testament passage to be read. And the second half is an unbelievable, uh, starting in verse 14, we read, uh, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a beautiful passage. It's an unbelievable passage. It's one that's often used around prayer to say we can come to the throne of grace because God intimately knows us to the fact that God became human. But I started in verse 11 because did you catch how stark of a contrast verses 12 and 13 are to verse 14. This is in the Hebrews passage. So if you're looking on in the bulletin and you're confused, that's okay. It's not in the bulletin. But what he says right before that intimate passage of, you have a Savior who can sympathize with your weaknesses, so come near, he says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This seems to be threatening. This seems to be one of those harsh statements in Scripture. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He wants us to know the power of the Word of God. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. How can He go right from that to then say, since then we have a great high priest, draw near to a throne of grace that you will find mercy and help in the time of need. How can He go from that, which you see in Psalm 139 too, that God is everywhere, that He knows you better than yourself, to search me. Know me. Show me. Is there any grievous... How could He ever do that? Well, He puts it right in there. It's because we have a high priest. We have Jesus, who is our high priest, who is the Word of God, who has searched you, who has known you, and we draw near Him. We draw near in Christ. We draw near knowing that if there is someone who knows us like this, we don't have to be afraid of what he's going to do with that knowledge. We don't have to be afraid that he's going to be 
using it as some evil corporation or some evil being that's going to turn that knowledge against us. Hebrews puts it right there. The word is living and active. You're not going to hide. It is piercing. It is piercing to your soul. It is going to unveil and expose everything. So come on in. Draw near. Wow. Our Creator and our Redeemer. Our Creator who knows our nature, knows what we are made for, knows our purpose, and our Redeemer says, come near. And so why is it that you hide? If we are to to stop hiding, I just want to look at two things that the psalmist does towards the end of this uh, passage. What, What is the encouragement to do if we are to stop hiding? And the first one, frankly, is to grow in our hate. And the second one is to grow in our humility. And yes, that's the first one is kind of weird when you read it. It probably appeared weird when you read it. And honestly, if this is read in funerals or if this is read in in services, sometimes verses, where is it? Verses 19 through 22 are just skipped right over. Because the whole psalm sounds a lot better without those verses, doesn't it? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with a malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Wouldn't the psalm be a lot more beautiful if it wasn't? It didn't have those in it? Why is that? Well, notice, first of all, what he's saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying my enemies are God's enemies. He's saying that God's enemies have become my enemies. What's the difference? The difference is anything you don't like, the person that really gets on your nerves, you don't that doesn't become God's enemies just because you want them to. But the fact is that there are things that are worthy of hate. There are things that we should hate. There are things we should be angry at. You know, you have that bumper sticker that goes around, if you're not angry, you're, what is it? If you're not angry, you're sleeping. Or, I, don't know, I butchered it. If you're not angry, you're not aware. Wake up. There are things that we should be angry at. The concern for the psalmist here is what? They speak against God with malicious intent. They take God's name in vain. They hate God. That, that is what deserves hatred for the psalmist. Now, the psalmist, written by the king of Israel, had a unique relationship to, to God as far as his enemies are, are, are different than ours. The enemies of a, of a military, of, of their military back then, literally were God's enemies. The enemies of our flesh and blood are not literally our enemies. But we can still pray this because there still are things worthy to hate. Actually, things that are Worse than that, because there are things that kill the soul, not just the body. There are things we should hate. We should hate, well, a lot of things. We should hate 
sexual assault. We should hate self-righteousness. We should hate pride. We should hate the thing that's within us that is not wanting to believe this psalm, that doesn't want to be known. We should hate the things that have told us to hide our shame from God. All of those things that we do that lead us to not love our neighbor. To not be passionate about God's honor. This shouldn't be as striking as it is. It should be a part and parcel of a Christian's worldview. But this isn't the end of the psalm. He's, he's expressing here how his desires, he wants them to fit with God's desires. But it's almost as if he's growing in a sort of humble hatred. Because right after he says, slay the wicked, he says, search me, O God. Did you notice that? Right after he says, I hate them with complete hatred, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Now, it's one thing to confess that God knows all things. To say, verses 1 through 17, to say, God, you know everything and it's beautiful and you have crafted me. Praise God. But then to honestly come in humble surrender and say, probe me even further. That's, that's real humility, isn't it? And this humble hatred is something that you see in Jesus himself. He often has these two things going together. Just like we see it in the psalm. He often has this, this absolute compassion and pity and mercy on the lost and the forgotten the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. And he has the hatred for the proud and the self-righteous. And he's trying to get through the hard-heartedness because they have shells that he needs to knock through. Whereas those who are lost, who are, who are forgotten, their shell has already been broken almost by the world. You see this in Jesus. I don't think we need to be afraid of it. But the thing that the humbleness does to us is that it's almost as if he can say that without being self-interested. He has lost himself so much in God that he can say, search me and know me. Destroy the evil and sin that is in the world and that is in me. Isn't that what he's saying? He can apply that same hatred, and this is what we should do as well, to the thing inside of us. A humble hatred for the thing that keeps us from knowing God, from showing the love of God that he would have us. This is an amazing psalm. It's, it's beautiful. It's one that maybe we have heard a lot, that gets read a lot of times, and I think it gets to the core of why it can be so hard and countercultural simply to be a Christian. To simply be a Christian, because this runs against the grain of our desire to be independent and autonomous. It runs against so much of what we want to pursue and live for. But if we don't realize that we are known, whether we want to or not, that we are known, that we are living a lie, 
You can say you don't have a right to live a certain way, that you don't want to live a certain way, but that's just not true. That is a lie. You don't have that right. You can do it. You can do whatever you want to a certain degree, but you are running up against the reality of the world, which is that God knows you. And the reason why that is incredibly good news is because God knows you and loves you. God knows you and stays in Jesus. God knows you and didn't abandon you in Christ. Because every urge, even part of the reason why we hide our shame is that we want to leave ourselves. You may get to that point where you just want to leave yourself. And Jesus says, no, let me separate the sin from who you are. Because you're right, you are a sinner. You are worthy of, of, of hatred. There are parts of you that are worthy of hatred. Yeah, but let me take that apart. And let me die for that. Let me swallow up the power of death for you so that you can live a new life that is the humility to say to the one who knows everything, know me. Show me how I can follow you. Give me a vision for the life that that is meant to be. Give me the hatred that you have, Lord, and give me the love that you have. Show me to grow in righteousness and in hatred of sin to the praise of God's glorious grace. That's what he wants to do with every single one of you here. That's what he is saying. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide.